Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast series from Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew and this week we are talking about the US economy. And as ever with the US, at least so it seems, there is a lot going on at the moment. Um, we've had GDP recently. We've got an important monetary policy decision coming up. There are issues around the debt ceiling. And of course, there are ongoing concerns around the banking sector. So I'm delighted to say I'm joined today by Abigail Watt, an economist uh, for our team working in Boston in the US. So Abby, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Luke. So, Abby, just jumping straight in, as I said, there's a lot to cover. So why don't we kick off with the US GDP report last month? And I think it's quite an interesting report because just by looking at the surface, it does seem consistent with this idea that the US economy has been slowing. But perhaps looking under the bonnet and some of the underlying details of the report, maybe the picture that emerges is a bit interesting. So do you want to just talk us through what you think of as being the key things that we learned from that bit of data? Yeah, so I think, as you say, it was a really interesting report, um, the Q1 GDP report that we we got last week. Um, the the headline number did come in softer, and so the, the headline number did show a slowing in the US economy relative to the fourth quarter. But one of the things that I would flag if we look at the the detail in the report is that there was a large correction in inventories. We did see large inventory building through the fourth quarter of the year, and we've seen some of a reversal of that in the first quarter. And that dragged quite a lot on the headline growth number. In fact, if you look at final sales to domestic purchases, which strips out those inventory swings, the economy actually grew at 3.2%, which was a faster pace of, of you know, expansion than we've, we saw in Q4. Um, and the key driver of that was the, the US consumer, which you know is proving very resilient. We saw both goods and services consumption it, you know, robust in the, in the print. And I think that's interesting because we had been seeing this dynamic in, in the US where you'd seen a pivot in demand from goods to services. And we've, we've maybe started to see kind of some of that softening in goods demand actually kind of coming out in the, in the latest data. So I think it's pretty clear then that the US economy, at least at the start of this year, was not in recession, but that is very much a backward looking assessment. And maybe the more interesting thing for us, especially in the context of our view that a recession is coming, is how the data is shaping up on a more forward looking basis. So as we're rolling through Q2 and seeing some of those other high frequency indicators, what is the story that we're getting from those about the strength of the economy? Yeah, so I think the the latest data that would give us a read on the, the momentum into the second quarter is the, the kind of market PMI series. And those did come in above expectations in April. In particular, on the services side, you've seen kind of more of a resurgence in the market PMI, which had been lagging behind the ISM services counterpart. Um, and I think that does signal that perhaps you've got quite a, a strong base going into the, the second quarter. But the one thing that I would flag is that we did see some of the harder economic data slowing towards the end of the quarter in, in Q1. So retail sales did come out a little softer than expected in March. And so there's there's a question as to, I guess, which signal you, you look at, some of that harder data slowing towards the end of Q1 
or whether you kind of focus on some of the, the kind of softer survey based measures like those market PMIs, which did come in a little bit stronger for April. I think ultimately the way that we would look at this, we do have kind of very short term now casting models for growth in the US economy, which will combine all of these signals together. And when we look at those models, we do see that growth is expected to slow into into Q2 currently on the basis of those models. Okay, and so in terms of what that means for our recession view, I mean, regular listeners will know that the framework in which we've approached this question is by thinking about it in terms of two separate questions. A, whether a recession is in some sense necessary to restore price stability, and then B, whether the sufficient conditions are in place in terms of policy or the trends in the data or whatever it might be to give us confidence that that recession is coming soon. So in terms of of the data that's coming in, and as you described it, how would you say our assessment across those two questions, both on the necessity of the recession and also whether the sufficient conditions are in place? How's those assessments evolving? Yeah, I think on the necessity of the recession question, I think that's another area where we have seen maybe uh, the resilience of the labour market data, the the fact that the labour market hasn't yet begun to kind of turn over or or kind of employment growth hasn't kind of significantly slowed below trend is something that we're watching closely in terms of the necessity of this recession. I think one of the things that is also worth noting is that when we look at composition adjusted wage growth measures, some of those measures have have proven a little bit stickier relative to the average hourly earnings data that that tends to be followed very closely in the US. So things like the Atlanta Fed wage growth tracker and the employment cost index, which we got last month, aren't necessarily showing as a stronger trend in terms of slowing wage growth. And that's something that we think we need to see in order for inflation pressures to begin to wane in the US economy. And without that, you know, we do think that, you know, a recession is necessary to restore price stability. And then in terms of the the second part of your question around the likelihood of a recession and how the the data are evolving that would be in line with that view, if we look at first, I guess, the GDP print, business fixed investment was pretty weak in the print. That's somewhere where we, we kind of tend to see business investment rolling over a little bit ahead of consumption, ahead of recessions. And so we are starting to see kind of some signs that the Fed's hiking cycle is causing businesses to cut back on on some of their investment and their capex intentions. And I think the other area that I'd flag, you know, we've, we've seen kind of a bottoming out in some housing market indicators. And I think people have been reading into that as a sign that perhaps a recession is, is less likely. The one thing that I would flag is that in that period where you saw this kind of bottoming out in the housing market data, we've also seen kind of a, a, a kind of pullback in, in mortgage rates. But since the banking sector turmoil, mortgage rates have since kind of increased again. And I would say that some of that kind of temporary relief in the housing market sector will prove temporary, in fact. And so ultimately, when we pull all of, the, all of these signals together, our model implied recession risks are sitting at around 70% within the kind of six to nine month horizon. And so I think we're, we're kind of pretty on track in terms of some of the pockets of weakness in the US economy for a, a recession to occur later this year. But I do think the, the kind of resilience in the consumer is something that we're watching closely in terms of the timing of that recession. So you mentioned the banking sector turmoil there. And as we record this on the 2nd of May. That feels very much top of mind given what happened to First Republic seized by the FDIC and then sold on to JP Morgan over 
the last weekend. And the way that we've been characterising this turmoil up to now is that we don't think a systemic crisis, certainly not a systemic crisis of the order of 2008, is particularly likely. But that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be quite significant economic spillovers in terms of tighter credit conditions and what that means for growth. So, I mean, has any of the recent news around the banking sector changed that broad assessment? And what are the key things that we'd be looking at to see how that story evolves? Yeah, I think it's just another sign that we're seeing some of the, I guess, tightening in financial conditions and the tightening in policy from the Fed feeding into the economy. Given the clear vulnerability of the banking sector to the the rapid rise in interest rates, um, it's not necessarily surprising that we're starting to see cracks appear there. I would say that it it continues to be our view that this isn't likely to be a systemic crisis. Um, And I think one of the reasons that we kind of have some comfort is that that generally banks are continuing to use the liquidity provisions from the Fed. We did see kind of some of the the kind of uh, liquidity provisions that were being used by banks declining in recent weeks. Um, But since the the kind of, in particular, since the release of First Republic's Q1 results last Monday, we did see kind of quite a strong tick up in banks' use of both the discount window and the bank term funding program. And so I would say that given that those measures of liquidity provision are there for the banking sector, we're perhaps slightly less concerned on the the chances of this becoming a systemic crisis. I think where we are maybe slightly more concerned and and kind of what gives us kind of more comfort in terms of our recession call for the US is the fact that this will have implications for credit conditions. So one of the things we're watching closely is the senior loan officers survey from the Federal Reserve. And this data was already ahead of this banking sector turmoil, um, showing that banks were tightening their lending standards uh, within the economy. And our expectations are that we will see that continue to tighten further. And then as you see kind of access to credit for both businesses and for consumers in the U.S. economy kind of being tightened, it's certainly the case that we would expect that to weigh on both business investment and consumption in the U.S. economy. Now, on the topic of the Fed, we are recording this just before the Fed is about to make another policy decision. I suspect by the time you are listening to it, we will know what that decision is. I mean, the good news is that the decision itself doesn't look to be particularly controversial. It's pretty clear, I think, to most observers that the Fed is going to deliver a 25 basis point increase. You'll know whether I'm right on that as you listen. But, um, Abby, I think perhaps the more interesting thing is, A, sort of what communication we get from the Fed this week and be where the decision will sit within the broader context of this tightening cycle. So do you want to give your thoughts on those two questions? Yeah, I mean, I think as you as you've alluded to, our expectations are for that 25 basis point hike. And I think that's pretty firmly priced at this point. I think the the really key thing that we're watching is the communication from the Fed at this meeting. I think there's a real question as to whether they choose to deliver this as a, a kind of hawkish last final hike? Do they decide to to kind of weigh um, in the communications on that kind of near-term resilience that we're seeing in the economy and perhaps some of the kind of labour market dynamics that I mentioned earlier? Or do they choose to kind of focus in on the banking sector turmoil, focus in on the failure of First Republic and then kind of give this as a, a dovish final hike in the sense of we, you know, 
expectations that you know the banking sector stresses are a sign that policy is tight enough now to bring inflation back in line with the Fed's target. So as you say our expectation is that this will be the last hike of the cycle but what kind of things would be looking for to increase the risk that the Fed does have to come back and as it were, take a second bite of the cherry in terms of pushing through more interest rate increases? What kind of stuff will will matter to the Fed as it makes that decision? Yeah, so I think obviously the labour market dynamics that I mentioned earlier will be absolutely critical in this. The extent to which we see wage growth proving sticky and the ultimate pass through of that into inflation will be something that the Fed will be watching closely. As you said, our expectations are that this is the final hike. But I think if you see some of those wage pressures kind of feeding through into stronger inflation pressures, I think that's the point at which you would see the Federal Reserve maybe um, either holding rates higher for longer or, as you say, perhaps returning to the table and having to hike even further. And I think ultimately in that in that scenario, if the Fed were to be forced to return to the table and, and kind of further tighten policy, I do think that's an environment in which you would see perhaps a recession not necessarily taken off the table, but it's an environment in which you see a recession pushed back in terms of timing and perhaps even worse in depth because you've had to see kind of a more significant tightening in policy to induce the recession in the first place. But assuming we avoid both that stronger inflation outturn and indeed anything worse than the recession we're forecasting, how do we see policy evolving over the next couple of years? So our expectations are that the Fed likely has to keep policy tighter for longer uh, through this period. But we do ultimately think that when the recession arrives in the US economy, the Fed will have to cut rates fairly rapidly. Historically, the Fed does cut very strongly into a downturn. And our expectations are that they would get rates back down to the zero lower bound. This is something that's maybe slightly out of consensus, but I think there's a few things that I would flag that maybe are different in our view to consensus. The first is that we're expecting this recession to not be necessarily mild, but to be a run-of-the-mill recession. We're expecting growth to contract in line with kind of past recessions outside of the global financial crisis and the pandemic-related recession. And then we're also expecting that, you know, this recession will work to curl those inflation pressures and we will see kind of inflation coming back down below target and with those kind of two things i think that's an environment in which the fed the fed has space to kind of cut policy back down to the zero lower bound and then so finally to pivot us away from monetary policy and towards fiscal policy or at least fiscal policy of sort Uh, We've recently had tax returns data out of the US, which implies that those returns are coming in a little bit weaker. And that's significant because it implies, for want of a better way of putting it, the US government might run out of money sooner rather than later, which, you know, it reaches the, uh, the X date on the debt ceiling when it can no longer service its obligations. So how are things shaping up around a deal to increase the debt ceiling? And when a deal, assuming one does come, I mean, what what, what do you think the main features of it will be? So I think the fact that the X date seems to be moving earlier does kind of put pressure on the negotiations. I think expectations were for that X date to fall kind of late summer, August time. And, you know, I've now seen estimates as early as June 1st. And that really doesn't leave much time for negotiations to take place. So I think that either means that 
Congress is is kind of pushed into forming a deal more quickly, or it actually, you know, probably increases the likelihood that this is punted and you get a short term extension. So a short term kind of increase in the debt ceiling um, so that those negotiations can take place. If we look at where the two parties are in terms of their negotiating positions, you can see that the the Democrats have very firmly not moved from their, their kind of stance of a clean debt ceiling increase. Whereas that's very far removed from the proposal that passed in the House on the Republican side in recent weeks. And I think given how far apart the two parties are on this currently, I think if that X date does come earlier, it's likely that you see that punt to like later in the year. And the extent to which um, that then changes the shape of the proposal will depend on how long that extension is. Because if that extension happens to the kind of summer, then I think it's likely that the Democrats will make less concessions on the spending side. Whereas I think if you push it further out to, to maybe September time, then that likely means that you, you kind of wrap this in with the normal budget proposal process. And when you, when you do that, then I think it's likely that the, the kind of Democrats might have to make more spending concessions um, in that environment. But I do think in terms of what the final bill, the final bill looks like, I think the one thing that is in, in the Republicans proposal that's that's likely off the table, I think some of those key proposals around the, the kind of Inflation Reduction Act spending and spending around student loans in particular as well. But ultimately, I think as well, the other thing that's going to be a, a sticking point is the, the length of the extension. In the Republicans proposal, they have they have suggested a one year extension to kind of March next year. And I do think given that it's an election year, I think Biden will be pushing for a longer extension to end 2024. But ultimately, we think that it's going to go down to the wire as it does most of the time with these negotiations. And I think the composition of Congress this time around makes that even more likely. Well, this podcast has also gone down to the wire in the sense that that is all that we have time for this week. So please do let me remind you, as always, to subscribe and like us on your podcast platform of choice. And so all that then remains for me to do is to thank Abby for joining us today and her excellent uh, contributions and to thank you all for listening. So thanks very much and speak again soon. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment, recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.